Welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast, where you can keep up to date with what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators, and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Amanda Marr, your host. I'm a member of the ISTC and a freelance technical author. Each month, the podcast team plans to bring you interviews with people working in technical communication across a diverse range of industries, as well as all the latest news and events from our profession. This month, I am talking with Catherine Rushton, a freelance translator and reviser who specializes in technical documentation and industrial marketing content. Based in Hampshire, Catherine started out in marketing and market research before setting up her own business in 2011. Welcome to the ISTC podcast, Catherine. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Good. So my first question, given that you're a translator, is what language do you specialise in? Right. Professional translators translate into their mother tongue, which Ah. in my case is English. Uh, So I translate from German, French and Spanish into English. Yeah, because I wasn't sure whether there was a different skill set between whether you translate other languages into English or English into other languages. Yeah, there is a specific direction it should go in if you're a, a true pro. It's not the dumb thing to translate out of your mother tongue, because unless you are genuinely bilingual and most bilingual people actually have tend to have one language stronger than the other. So the professional standard is that you only translate into your mother tongue. Yeah. In January's podcast, we learn from CJ Walker that often businesses that are supplying many countries find it more cost effective to get instructions written in English and then translated out into other languages. Is that how it works in your experience? That's what we call using English as a pivot language. The reason being that, you know, if you, particularly if you need content in multiple languages, then The fact is that English is still a very widely spoken language. So rather than getting it translated from German to Japanese to, you know, just for want of an example, and this, that and the other language, it pays to to have it translated into English well. And the translator in that situation should also be aware that it's being used as a pivot translation into other languages, you know, so that they're aware that they might need to keep the language slightly more simple, slightly more neutral, whatever. And then you're going to find lots of people who translate from English to rather than from lots of other languages to. To other languages, yes. Oh, right. The other question was how you got into translation for technical communication. Because you started in marketing and market research. So what made you change and come into this direction? Yes. I mean, as you said, my my marketing experience was all B2B and it was I started my career with BT, actually. So that was all, you know, global networks and, and so on. And I stayed in B2B. So I was always, you know, even when I went sort of transition from marketing more to market research and from market research to market analysis. It was always basically in a B2B environment and essentially in a technical environment. And the truth is that most translators actually, I suppose the expression is, you know, they develop their specialisms by osmosis. Yeah. Um, You know, sometimes out of necessity when you're starting out. But I had 
something of a technical background. My other passion in life, aside from languages, is music. And I used to do a lot of audio recording. So in the process of learning to sound engineer and using the equipment and taking it to bits and putting it back together again, sort of I lost my fear of things technical, I think, (laughs) through doing all that. So that combined with working in an industry with technical products, it didn't come as too much of a shock to do technical translation. And it was partly necessity as well, because when I decided to set up as a translator, I was actually given a helping hand by a friend of mine I graduated with way back, who essentially had been a translator ever since. So, you know, she's had 30 years experience at this stage. And when I mentioned, you know, I I really would like to go back to what I trained for and, and be a translator. She very kindly introduced me to a couple of her customers and, um, you know, said she would mentor me, which she did very generously. And they both basically both of those customers handled mainly technical translation. So I basically just had to get on with it you know, <laughs> with with a very good and patient mentor for support. You know, but I the, the benefit was I already had that bit of technical background of technical products. I had good research skills. So what I didn't know, I could find out. Research skills is also the, you know, the willingness to ask questions, the curiosity, the not being afraid to ask questions. Absolutely. That's a that's a real golden rule for me. And I would say to anyone, you know, who uses a translator, if they're not asking you any questions, you should be worried (laughs) Um, because that means they're either guessing or they're a genius. I ask a lot more questions now than I did when I was first starting out because I was frightened of appearing ignorant. Yeah. And, you know, you learn really quickly that you just don't take that chance. You know, you have to ask and it's okay to ask and it's okay to not know. You know, I think you need to have that humility in most jobs, not just in translation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. We've all had experience of using Google Translate with varying degrees of success. And I wanted to know what your opinion was of translation software. Translation software is the software I use on a day-to-day basis. Ah. But what, what you mean is machine translation. That's what Google Translate is. Got you. So Google Translate is machine translation. Yeah, what do you think about machine translation then and what's your experience of it? Is it yeah. a useful halfway house or is it really best just not to go there at all? I'm going to precurse this with one of those disclaimers that says, you know, the following is the personal and exclusive opinion <laughs> yeah. of the speaker because these are my personal opinions but I can also vouch that they are the opinions of every single good quality translator I know so machine translation is obviously here to stay it is despite having been around now for I think the best part of 70 years it's still nowhere near doing as good as a job as a human it doesn't contextualize it doesn't identify or correct mistakes. It just replicates them. So, you know, when, when I think about that, I think about the number of sort of proper names I have to correct in my day to day work, for example. The, my favourite ever so far was Donald Trump without the D on the end, who was obviously his Irish cousin. <laughs> um, but machine translation would just replicate that mistake. It doesn't think and it doesn't feel 
you know, for me, it is part of the translator's toolkit and I accept that. But personally, I would say I use machine translation less than one percent of the time. You know, I don't because I don't find it helpful. The, the, the only situation I might use it in is if I've got a sentence with 15 clauses in it and I'm trying to break it down and I think, have I missed something here? Then if that information is not confidential and it doesn't contain anything that would identify the customer I'm working for, because it's not confidential when you enter that information, it does go out there into the Google ether. But that's when I use it. If I'm, you know, if I just want to cross check. Yeah. So, you know, where I'm at at the moment is there are two types of customer that I work for. One is translation agencies or language service providers, as they're called. The other is direct clients. So on the agency side, there are more and more and more requests for their translators to work on MTPE, machine translation post editing. Now, what that is, and this is my personal opinion, agencies are selling post-edited machine translation to their end customers as faster, cheaper, same quality. Ah, and but, so does this mean that there's a piece of text, it's been through machine translation, and then it goes past a, tra- a, a live translator? Exactly right. Yeah, that it still makes sense. Yeah, and there are, there are different levels of post-editing, but from a translator's point of view, you are basically you're being offered half your rate and it takes just as long. That is my personal experience. And I tried it some years ago on one account and it was just horrendous. It took me at least as long as if I'd translated it from scratch. So it's, you know, the bottom line is it, it just isn't worth it. Yeah. I have not seen one piece of machine translation for post-editing that was remotely acceptable. That's my experience. And the final point I would make on that, I think, is, you know, if you're looking at web content, I read an interview in the Search Engine Journal with John Muller from Google. Now, John Muller is the senior webmaster trends and analyst at Google. And he was asked in that interview, how does Google rank machine translated content? And he basically said, well, your site will get ranked as lower quality because I quote, often the translations aren't that great. And he went on to say they would possibly be seen as spam and they might, you know, Google just might not index them at all. And then they asked him, so what about if you machine translate something and then you use a translator to pep it up? Mm-hmm. And he basically said, nah, yeah. you know, it's that's <laughs> still not going to be good enough if you want to rank in the search engine rankings. Because what he said was, you've got to think, what kind of content would you expect to read in your language? And he came down to the key point, which is it's a matter of trust. He said, when people are reading something that doesn't sound natural, they don't trust it. Yes. You know, so it's about trust and credibility. And that's why if you can possibly avoid it, don't use it. Yeah. Save you money. Yeah. In the long run. Yeah. Because the potential for rework and the potential for damage, it just isn't worth it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. In the introduction, I mentioned that you are a reviser. Uh, Now, I haven't seen that as a a role description before. Can you explain what it is that you do as a reviser? Yes. 
uh, revision is uh, some people confuse it with proofreading revision usually in my profession means comparing the source text sentence by sentence with the translation sentence by sentence that's been done by another translator so that's part of industry standards in, in the sense that it's the four eyes process it's more than a sanity check as a reviser it's your job to establish whether the translation in respect to the source text is it correct is it accurate is it consistent is the register correct for the target audience and obviously all the hygiene factors like spelling and grammar and so on you remember for the institute for translation and interpreting can you tell us a bit about that yes there is more than one professional body for translators and interpreters in the uk there is iti uh, which is uh, the one I'm a member of, and there's CIOL, the Chartered Institute of Linguists. So why did I join a professional body? Well, it, I, ca I came to this profession having trained in it, but having never actually done it. And, you know, when I graduated in languages, there was no, there was basically no internet. Yes. Let alone computer-aided translation tools, by which I mean trans the translation software we use in our jobs. I mean, the whole nature and scope of the job had changed. So, wow. you know, one obvious reason for joining a professional association was to actually catch up with what I've missed in the last <laughs> 25 or 30 years, you know, how the translation animal had changed yeah. and get myself up to speed. You know, what tools do I need? How does it work these days? What's the process? What's the what's the structure of the industry? Where are the customers? And what are the standards and requirements that are, that are demanded of a professional? And obviously, the other side of it is CPD. And again, when I was starting out, I just I did as much as I could just trying to get learn the ropes, really. So that was really why I joined. And then I took my translator's exam in 2014. So then I became a, an MITI, a qualified member of the oh. Institute of Translation and Interpreting. They do what most professional bodies do. You know, they try to raise the profile of the industry. They also try to educate translation customers, translation buyers, and yeah, just to, to professionalise the industry and to set and maintain professional standards so that people who want to find a translator or an interpreter, obviously, but have a place to go to, have a place to go to where they can put a peg in the ground and say these people are serious about their job. They've taken a qualification. They're reliable. They adhere to a code of conduct. So, yes, the ITI and CIOL both have directories of qualified members so if you're looking for a translator and you, you don't know where to start that is a good place to go cool do they have any standards that you have to adhere to or are there other kind of industry standards that you have to adhere to does the iti and their equivalents have standards they expect you to adhere to yes as i mentioned there's a code of conduct and that deals with the soft side of things confidentiality integrity professionalism in the way you deal with people and so on they also recommend a minimum of 30 hours cpd per year to make sure that people are constantly maintaining and developing their skills so in the wider world there is an industry standard there used to be an en standard for translation and that was replaced in 2015 by iso 17100 and it covers five areas, minimum standards, which is 
things like the four eyes process I was speaking about. The second area is qualifications. That talks about a certificate of competence from an appropriate national body. So in my case, that's ITI. Yeah. Pre-production. And that's talking about the client contractor cooperation. And, and that's things like, are you, you know, you agree what the quality level needs to be. You agree what the QA requirements are. You agree if there are any style guides to be used. So it's the kind of the project management around, you know, around it. Yeah. The fourth area is the feedback process. And that in theory, that's for the purpose of customer satisfaction. But I would argue that feedback is a two way thing. You know, for, so from a translator's point of view, it's also the opportunity to, to to give the customer feedback on what might have gone better or what you could do better. For example, if the person in the company with the key knowledge on the product you were translating about hadn't gone on holiday <laughs> without telling anyone when yeah. you needed to submit queries to them. But it's the kind of thing that happens. It, it happens all the time. And the, the last area that the, the standard covers is data protection requirements. So, you know, confidentiality. I see the impact of that more and more with GDPR. Obviously, after that came in, things changed quite radically. And I even have customers now who request that people's names and or email addresses. And you get those a lot in technical documents, don't you? You know, because you've got contacts for this, that or the other department. We are told not to confirm in inverted commas the segment because what happens in a translation tool when you confirm a segment it goes into the translation memory so it's effectively then committed to a database of sorts and then another tra other translators are likely to use it if it's you know if that memory is then used for different projects so some customers are even sort of getting as specific as that about it so that's the kind of that's the long and the short of the industry standard the iso standard good Right. So one I haven't asked is about audience. Who is your audience? Are there several different audiences you have to write content for? And how do you put yourself in the shoes of your audience? My audience is people who buy and operate machinery. So in other words, you know, I translate lots of operating manuals for industrial machinery. So that would be mainly the users. Another of my major audiences are people who buy industrial products on a large scale. That's the marketing side of my work. I do a fair amount of industrial marketing. So, yeah, so the kind of the information about the machinery that generally right. fail. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, the benefits and features, distinction and all that yeah. good stuff. That's very much persuasive writing yeah. but it still has to be it still has to have gravitas it has to be credible because of what they're selling yes and then finally i guess it's the wider stakeholders because i do corporate communications as well for the same type of companies you know that i try and keep it within the scope of industrial products that i understand yeah so i guess my audience is probably threefold in that sense yeah do you have anything that you do that helps you kind of get into their heads of what it is that they want? I'm smiling because it depends. Sometimes, yes, very much so. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I don't have to, you don't have to go that far. Yeah. Uh, to, like, what would you call that method translation, like method acting? Yeah. <laughs> um, the way I approach translation is to communicate effectively. Yeah. That's what translation is. It's communication. 
Yeah. So, you know, I come at it, how I, how can I communicate this message effectively? And therefore I need to know who am I communicating it to, to start with and what, you know, what is the message? What's the purpose of the document? And that's a question that translators should always ask, even if they already think it's obvious. Fairly recently, I translated an operating manual for an industrial compactor attachment that attached to, you know, a large mechanical digger. Yeah. So it was for use on big building sites where they're building, you know, huge buildings. And yeah. now the source document in parts was written using words and concepts that a graduate engineer would understand. But my thought process was, OK, it's clear to me that the person who's going to be attaching this to the digger and using it and operating it is the man driving the digger. Yes. Who is not going to be a graduate engineer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was a classic. I actually had to ask an engineer friend of mine. I collect engineers <laughs> for my own purposes. Oh, um, I had to ask an engineer to explain a couple of the concepts. And I had to then work out because I knew that the customer had actually used a couple of words in English that we do not use. Oh, so, yeah. So that was one where I had to figure out how do I write this? How do I translate this so that the man driving the digger is going to find it easy and clear to read? Yeah. While also satisfying the customer that's produced the source, because I know if I don't put that word in in English, they're going to ask me why. Yeah. So there was a certain amount of use of parenthesis, you know, to solve that problem of actually explaining it in natural English. And then so that they've gone, OK, yes, yeah, so our term is in there. So that, yeah, that, that was a fairly classic example. Excellent. As usual, I stalk all my interviewees. On, the, on your LinkedIn, you had a lovely little strap line that said, translation is a science, communication is an art. Yes. Would you like to expand on that, please? I will, <laughs> yes. I actually do firmly believe that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's that's more than a soundbite for me. Different people would argue translation and communication are both a science, translation and communication are both an art. So you can argue it always, but that is my view. Why do I view translation as a science? Mm -hmm. Because you have to be very methodical. You have to do a lot of research and information mining. Yeah. You have to think very carefully about idea sequencing, for example. And there's a lot of quality assurance involved from various different angles. I feel in my day to day work on that side of it, I really do take a scientific approach because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to do the job. You know, you, it's not just a question of sitting there in a vacuum and sort of crafting lovely sentences. It's not that simple. And the, the art side of it, I view communication as the art in, in that equation, because you've got to ask yourself, as we were talking about earlier, who am I speaking to here? And the message could be very different depending on who that is. What message does the customer want to convey? Yeah. And that is where you start crafting the message so it's relevant as well as clear and readable for, in my case, a British speaking or American English speaking audience. Yeah. But it's, it's in the communication where the art comes in and the art is then this is the target audience. This is the message here. How are you going to deliver it? 
exactly how do I deliver it and keep it engaging keep it easy to read not send this person to sleep um, <laughs> yeah that, that's my justification for my strap line I view my job as staying focused on the objective and the target audience of the document I am dealing with yeah and I also it's very important to me to try and add value and sometimes that means arguing the toss you know rather than letting the customer go ahead and do something that's going to affect their credibility yeah given what you've just said about sometimes having to argue the toss what kind of limits and restrictions do you have how do you deal with that arguing the the reader's case yeah that's a very good way of putting it and and effectively that's that's what we do uh, in those cases i mean some sometimes it's it's a no-brainer so for example if you've got what's effectively transcreation which is a hybrid of translation and creative writing. So and you might get that in a header. I did a recently I did. The, there's a, a large German engineering conglomerate. I should describe them as. And I do a lot of internal business articles for them. So that would might be describing, for example, cybersecurity. Yeah. The cybersecurity department had written it in order to explain to other people in the company who are not specialists what it is, what are the key elements of it? Why is it, why is it important? So it had to be easy to read. They had used a cultural reference to a character in a German news show. Um. And there's this character called the Erklärbär, which literally translated is the explainer bear. Uh-huh. And, you know, he comes on. It's a man in a bear costume <laughs> who comes on this weekly news program and explains complex news stories in a way that so it's easier for people to get their head around them you know so to them it was it was a perfectly normal reference to use and they'd they'd even used it in the title so i had to grapple with that and they actually nicknamed one of the the key contacts in their department he had a special role as cybersecurity air clair there so in the end i changed the for the title in the end i used the bare necessities of cybersecurity oh which was you know a long way from what the actual the original title was but it it spoke far more to what the article was about yes um, i like that and then i had to actually in the text explain what the air clair bear is in brackets in half a sentence <laughs> so that people would then get the references to why this guy's pseudo role or special role was the the cybersecurity explainer there in technical translation i think the biggest thing is making things more concise because certainly from the languages i translate from the tendency is to be very very repetitive and very wordy in a way that would just will drive an english reader nuts so i spend a lot of my time and i love that aspect of it i love making a sentence as economical as possible yes. but you know in doing that what you've got to be thinking about is there's a, a, a well-known translation guru if i can put it like that you know who's written textbooks on translation theory and so on and a colleague of mine in a recent workshop quoted him he said account for everything but don't put everything in Ah. And, you know, and with technical translation, particularly, that's what it's about. Good. Now you're working as a freelancer. Um, yeah. Are you finding that enjoyable or stressful or what are you thinking? I love being a freelancer. So I love working on my own. 
and or in small teams, you know, with handpicked colleagues. I never felt comfortable in the corporate environment. You know, I've done two stints in corporate life and I just felt like a round peg in a square hole. Yeah. Um, and, you know, through my career, I've moved to smaller and smaller and smaller organisations. Yeah. Until I reached an organisation of one. Yay. So, yeah, I like it. I mean, the, people talk a lot about feast and famine in freelancing. And I've I've been very lucky. I'm going to use the word lucky. You know, I would also say I've worked extremely hard to create that luck. I'm also glad that I've got, if you like, more than one string to my bow, because it is important to specialise in translation in the sense that, you know, you do really need to have a good understanding of the industries you're working with if you're going to do the job well. But by the same token, you know, I know people who, for example, what about the people who were only translating for the tourism industry? Yeah. You know, they have had a really, really, really tough couple of years whereas at least if I'm not doing a tech document I might be doing a business article or some marketing you know what I mean within within the scope the and the only other thing I suppose with freelancing we work from home it can be very isolating you know it's accepted in the in the profession that it is a pretty isolating job yeah Um, you know squirreling away at your computer and um, looking things up in your dictionaries. And so I've I've got better at having chats on Skype with colleagues. And, you know, that's another good thing about the Institute that I belong to. That's another outlet for workshops or coffee mornings or whatever it might be. And ISTC. Yes, you've recently joined the ISTC. So can you explain what your thinking was in doing that and, and why you joined? I don't get out much. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of positive motivations in terms of, you know, my focus is on technical translation. And I think in the longer term, that's probably what I'll do more of. Yeah, because I love that economical style of language, you know. And so there's a lot more I can learn on that front. And so I thought, you know, it'd be good to meet some like minded people who care about language, who care about spelling and grammar, <laughs> who are kind of, you know, professional pedants, if you like. Yeah. Um, but who are not translators because, you know, you you have to step outside your own sphere. And so I thought it would be really interesting to kind of do semi-social, semi-professional stuff with a bunch of people who have whose skills cross over with mine. Yes. You know, but who are kind of on the other side of the fence. You know, you the tech authors are people who write the documents that people like me translate. Not in my case, because I translate into English, but the principle is the same. Part of the world. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I just thought it was really interesting to meet people who do that and you know, learn what your challenges are, what your constraints are. It's almost like you're, you know, in that kind of audience way, you get your documents that you translate from technical authors around the world in different countries from different languages. Yeah. So you're kind of getting into the mind of a technical author. <laughs> That's exactly right. You see, you talked about stalking earlier on. But you... You know, none of you in the Thames Valley group have realised that that's what I'm doing, kind of mind stalking. I'm getting inside your heads. It's quite scary, actually. Now I've started to get inside your heads. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to come in here. It's not good. No, no. Having joined the ISTC, have you found that there is a, a lack of knowledge about what you do as a translator? 
I have been able to help one person who was have, looking to have his website translated and didn't know where to start. So that was nice. I was able to help him out. But I do, yeah, I do get the impression that a fair number of people don't really understand what a translator does or and how a translation happens. Yeah, I do technical writing and I can see companies are getting to the point where they're probably going to want to extend this out to other languages. And it's kind of like, oh, that's a bit of a dark art. And I've no idea. <laughs> where do where where do I go? What do I do? What magic books do I have to look up? It's kind of something that is really linked to what we do. Yeah, I'm hoping that I can demystify it a bit for people. Within that, you're going to be doing a talk for TCUK online. Yeah, so that's next month. What's that going to kind of cover? Is it more the the process or? Yeah, it is. It's I really what I'm going to try and do is give people a whistle stop tour of how a translation gets done. Yeah. And, the you know, the key tools and then talk about what they as the customer or translation buyer yeah. can do to, to set themselves up for success, really. So that is the lunchtime, one o'clock Friday, the 7th yeah. of September. Yes. Yeah, it is. Good. Yeah. I'll be tuning in because it's definitely something I need to know. <laughs> so one thing we haven't spoken about is, as a translator, what tools do you use? There's three main categories. First is my CAT tool, my computer-aided translation tool, which is translation software. So, you know, I'll be giving a, a like a little tour of, of a translation software package in that presentation because I think it's very difficult to actually get your head around yeah. that without seeing how it's put together. I work with a the tool which I believe is still the market leader, which is Trados Studio. So that that would be the first thing. The second thing would be glossaries. Whether I know sometimes the, the glossary will come with the project, not often enough, sadly, yes. but sometimes. <laughs> um, but I build and maintain my own glossaries. Yeah. For different areas, you know, so I have a mechanical engineering glossary. I have a pharmaceutical manufacturing glossary that has all the kind of the relevant legislation in it. Uh, you can integrate a glossary in Trados and in most computer aided translation tools. But it depends where that comes from. You know, as I say, normally you're not given a glossary. So it's actually very important to maintain your own. Thirdly, the Internet. <laughs> I just couldn't work with them. It really irks me to say that being from the pre-Internet age. But I have to say that that is true because I depend on it so much for research. Yeah. So a good example of that would be European legislation. Yes. Which, you know, you can access in different languages. So and that's what I use a lot, for instance, Eurlex, which is where all the European directives are. I spend a lot of time on there. And other corpora, that are, they're what we call concordance engines. So in a concordance engine, I can highlight, you know, type in a word or an expression. And when I enter it, it brings up that expression in snippets of text in sort of paragraphs from all kinds of different documents oh you know i can then work out what the correct term is for the context i'm looking for and sometimes i'm going to have to go to three or four different sources of those you know before i'm confident i've got the right thing yeah um it's like a cross-referencing 
at all. But the, you know, the very important thing is that you get the words in context. You don't, you know, they're not just like in a dictionary where you've just got the word and you don't know if it's right or wrong. Dictionaries and style guides, Hart's Rules for UK English, Chicago Manual of Style for US English, for when I can't remember where to put the comma, you know, <laughs> Friday afternoon when I'm tired, and Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the little Oxford Dictionary for writers and editors, I use, you know, I wouldn't be without that as well. That's you know, great for things like Latin expressions that crop up and abbreviations and multilingual and bilingual portals, specialist portals. So I'm talking about them. This is for terminology. I use Electropedia. It's the International Electrotechnical Commission, the IEC, runs a portal called Electropedia you know, and find certain words in definitions in different languages. And there's the IATE, which is I-A-T-E. That's the, the EU's multilingual term base. That's very good for technical terminology. Yeah. And then specialist portals like SAP, SAPTERM, and Microsoft, the Microsoft terminology portal. Yeah. So that's, that seems like a very big list of things I can't live without. And, and the one I wouldn't want to forget is what I mentioned earlier. I said I collect engineers and I would not want to live without my very carefully curated collection of specialists from different industries. I go through life collecting people, you know, so I'm a talker. You say you're a stalker. You haven't seen me. You know, if I find out somebody, I meet somebody who's a specialist in something I might need. That is excellent. There you go. Long list of tools there. Yeah, but good though. If you could change anything about the <clears throat> content that comes to you that would make your life easier, what would that be? That's very easy. And I, I know, you know, in this interview, I'm basically preaching to the converted. So I'm going to tell you what would make a lot of my life better, but I wouldn't expect anybody in ISTC to commit these crimes. <laughs> poor quality, poorly written source documents with inconsistent use of terms are just the bane of a translator's life. Yes. They take a huge amount of time to compensate for all of those factors. But in my dream world, well-written, proofread, spell-checked, grammar-checked, and a consistency check for the key terms and unexplained abbreviations yeah, I'm totally with you. <laughs> so, yeah. And again, you know, you guys, you're, you're not the type of people who are going to make those mistakes. And then aside from that, it's really just it's about context. What context can you provide that will help the translator do their job more efficiently, more effectively? You know, is there underlying legislation or technical standards that are relevant? Yeah, I think that's it, really. Yeah. Quality and, and context, quality context and reference material. Yeah, and just having that extra, extra information. But we're going to listen to your talk in September. Yeah. I'm going to let you go now. <laughs> that was all fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine. That was really fascinating and useful to get a translator's perspective on technical communication. Thank you for having me. And if you want to get in touch with Kat, you can find her on LinkedIn. Just search for Catherine Rushton. And if, like me, you feel the process of translation is a dark art, then check out Catherine's webinar on TCUK Online at 1pm on Friday, the 17th of September.
And now the main event we are looking forward to in September is the ISTC's annual conference for everyone involved in writing, editing, illustrating, delivering and publishing technical information. This year, TC UK Metro will be an online conference taking place during the last week of September, starting on Monday the 27th. Visit the website technicalcommunicationuk.com for the latest information. Join us next month when Imogen and myself will be reviewing TC UK Metro online conference. And in a change to our normal schedule, the podcast will be published on Friday, the 1st of October at the end of conference week. If you have a question about the podcast, email me at istc at istc.org.uk. I want to thank Catherine Rushton for being my interviewee today. And thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to tune in next month. Goodbye.